You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. One other announcement before we jump in to our uh, series on Esther here. Uh, As many of you are aware, in a few days, the state will lift its mask mandate for indoor settings. And and some of you are very excited about that. And it appears that the county will be going along with that decision. And according to these new regulations, masking will be optional for most people in most indoor settings, and and that includes churches. Now, you might have uh, questions about that, and if you do, stay tuned because our website will be updated later this week with all the various details about these new changes. Also, in the newsletter, we'll be sending that out. Uh, But here's what it means very practically. Uh, When you gather with God's people next week, some of you will have masks off. Some of you will have masks on. That's going to be reality probably for the foreseeable future. Okay? Some of you can't wait to rip that thing off. Some of you, for a whole variety of reasons, are going to keep it on. And and here's what this means. Either option is fine. It's fine. We encourage both. This is a Romans 14 issue. Paul talks about this in Romans 14, where Christians sincerely disagree over a matter of conscience, but it's an issue of personal conscience. And Paul is very clear, do not pass judgment on one another. Y'all have done a great job with that. You've been patient, you've been compliant, you've been adaptable, you haven't made this your hill to die on. Thank you. Thank you. This is just an encouragement to keep it up. Let's not make it the hill to die on moving forward either. Because there are hills that are much more important than this one, okay? So, we'll have more information but maskless, don't pass judgment on the maskers. Maskers, don't judge much, pass judgment on the maskless. You get the idea. Okay, we're good. Let's pray, and let's look at what God has to teach us. God, we thank you for your sustaining grace over the past two years. And Lord, I want to thank you for these people, uh, your people, your family, who have so graciously and patiently endured in this season. And now, Lord, I pray that you would teach us from your word and that you would give us minds that are attentive and hearts that are receptive to what you have to teach us. And we ask it for your sake, Jesus. Amen. Recently heard a story from a prominent Christian journalist. He was having dinner with a very well-known Christian leader. And in the course of their dinner conversation, this leader said to him, he said, you know, America is the last hope of Christianity. And the journalist was taken aback by that statement. And so he assumed the best. He he sought some clarification. He said, you know, I'm sorry, I think you misspoke. I think what you meant to say is that Christianity is the last hope of America. And the man said, no, I meant what I said. America is the last hope of Christianity. Now, most of us know that's bad theology, right? 
We know that God's kingdom is not dependent on any earthly kingdom. In fact, it's just the opposite. Any earthly kingdom only stands based on the blessing of God. God sets up leaders. God deposes leaders. His kingdom is the one that endures. And most of us would not say that. Here's the anxiety we might feel. When the culture looks like it's in decline, when the world seems to be going from bad to worse, when our beliefs feel less influential than ever, there's this anxiety we can get as the people of God. And it's tempting in that moment to think this, you know, that unless, unless the right people are at the center of cultural influence, unless we get the right leaders who make the right decisions and, and the right people pulling the levers of power, then we are doomed. We're doomed as God's people. And so as God's people, what do we do when we feel that? When, when the world feels very big and God feels small, absent, inactive? Well, what we're going to see is that is exactly the situation that the book of Esther addresses. We just started this new series on the Old Testament book of Esther. And, you know, I didn't really know what I was getting into when I picked this book because it is wild, man. Uh, but it's a very wonderful and weird little story about reversals, about improbable reversals, and about how the Jewish people are rescued from extinction through this improbable, weird, even ridiculous series of events. Now, you could say it's a story about how God delivers the Jewish people from extinction, but the story doesn't read that way, does it? In fact, as we read through the book of Esther, what we find is that God is conspicuous by his absence. In fact, the name God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. And as we saw last week, that omission is deliberate. The author omits mention of God to force us to what? To look for God. Where is God in this story? Where is he when he seems to be absent? And that's the point, that God is providentially working through weird, improbable things, even when it's not clear to us that he's there. That should be a great comfort to you as the people of God, because even when God seems completely absent from our lives, he is not. He's actually powerfully at work. In Esther, God's people find themselves under the thumb of the most powerful empire in the world. And whenever God's people are under the thumb of an empire, are in a situation where their beliefs are in the minority, there are two great temptations. One temptation is to fit in. Just assimilate. Go along to get along because it causes less conflict in life to just absorb the values of the people around you. That's one temptation. The other temptation is this, to throw up your hands and just despair. Say, God's working, but probably somewhere else. Not here. So go for it, God. You've left this place. Go do it somewhere else, and the world's just going to go from bad to worse. How do you avoid each of those responses when the world seems big and God seems small? Well, what Esther teaches us to do is to look at life a little more thoughtfully and a little more carefully. Two things this morning. First, we need to look more carefully and see the hidden weakness of worldly kingdoms. No matter how big and scary the culture looks, the kingdoms of the world look, if we pull back the curtain, we see they're actually pretty weak, pretty incompetent, 
and very contingent. Second, we need to look at the hidden work of God because God is always more active than he appears to be. Always. If we keep both in mind, we're going to avoid conformity or despair. Instead, we'll be faithful. All right, that's where we're going. So first, let's look at the hidden weakness of worldly kingdoms. And today, we're looking at the most powerful kingdom in the ancient world. 500 years before Christ, the Persian Empire was unmatched in power. But when we pull back the curtain, what we're going to see is this, that there are hidden weaknesses. In verse 1, we read this. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. As the author begins, he introduces us to the most powerful character in the book. At least he appears to be the most powerful, right? King Ahasuerus. That's the Hebrew transliteration of the Persian name. If you transliterate it into Greek, you get the name Xerxes, and that's how he's known in most history books. Xerxes ruled the known world from 485 to 465 B.C., And everything about this description is designed to underscore the king's big dealness. He's a big deal. His name is repeated needlessly three times in the first few verses, and he reigns over the known world. So to the Indus River, that's modern-day Pakistan, all the way down to Sudan and Ethiopia. As one ancient historian said, Xerxes ruled to the south where it was too hot to live. He ruled to the north where it was too cold to live. So from their perspective, everywhere you could live, you lived, and he reigned, and a little beyond that. That's the kind of king we're dealing with. What would that king's kingdom look like? That's verses 2 through 9. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital of Persia, In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. How many days? 180 days. It's two years into Xerxes' reign. He has just stomped down a rebellion in Egypt. He's consolidated his power, and now he wants to extend the empire And the narrator says that he establishes his throne in Susa. That's where the drama is going to take place. And Xerxes now wants to flex. He wants to show just how great he is to all his officials. And according to verse 4, he throws in a party for all of his governing officials that lasts 180 days. Some of you like to party. You've never partied that long. What does that mean, 180 days? It could be that the partying was on and off and that there were so many different royal officials that the idea is more that he's showing his pomp, his splendor to different people. But in any case, over the course of this time, he is whining and dining people and showing off his big dealness to all of his governors, all of his military officials. And so what do you do after you party for six months? Well, you throw another party, of course, and that's what he does. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold, couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, 
vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and the drinking was not according to this edict, there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So, the king wines and dines all of his officials, and then he throws a seven-day feast, and this one is for everyone in the citadel. The citadel is the upper part of Susa. This is where all the staff live. So all the government staff, the most humble to the greatest, they get a huge party, and the whole point is this is as luxurious as it gets. Herodotus, the Greek historian, said that when the Greeks raided Persia, I think they took out 853 tons of gold. Okay, this is just every expensive, excessive thing is in one place. More earthly treasure than you could imagine. Nothing is too expensive for the party. Nothing is too excessive for the party. In fact, in verse 8, the king issues a decree for wine. And basically it's this, the only rule is there are no rules. You can drink as much as you want. And that's poking fun at the Persians because they love to make laws about everything, right? And so they make a law that there are no laws. They have to make a law for it, though, right? That's the, that's the funny thing about it. And at the same time, the Queen Vashti is throwing a banquet for all the female staff in the empire. Now, the question we need to ask when we read something like this is why? Why party this much? Does the king just like to party? Is that it? No. That's not his motivation here. What does verse 4 say? The king wanted to show the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. There's a reason for the parties. The party is propaganda. It's propaganda. We know that Xerxes wanted to conquer Greece and whatever was beyond Greece. How do you convince your government that you can go do that? You say, look how much stuff we have. Do you see our resources? We could wage an endless war. So, Xerxes wants to show, one, don't mess with us. We can win any battle. Two, he wants to show that life is best under who? Xerxes. That if you want the good life, just put yourself under the thumb of the empire and you'll get everything you could ever want. So this is all about the king's greatness, the king's goodness. This is a propaganda party to drum up support. But the author shows us what's just beneath the surface and sort of deconstructs the propaganda for us. And that's the rest of the passage. And he shows us two things, that this kingdom, it's not all that good. Second, this kingdom's not all that great. First, the kingdom isn't all that good. Look what happens at the party. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, if I had seven sons, that's what I was going to name them, but uh, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Remember that scene in The Wizard of Oz uh, when they finally see the wizard? And, and up to this point, the Wizard of Oz is the most terrifying, fearsome, wise person 
imaginable, and then they see the man behind the curtain. Right? Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. This is the literary equivalent of that. It, in the first half of the chapter, we have our perception of what the king is going to be like. In the second half of the chapter, we see the man behind the curtain. And the first thing we see is that he is a very weak, wicked, capricious man. He is not impressive. He's not fearsome. He's not intimidating at all. In fact, when he asks his own wife to come to dinner, she says, no. And what we see here is that, you know what, Persian rule, it's not good for everybody. And it's really bad if you were a woman. This is a culture of excess, especially when it came to drinking. And here, literally, it says the king's heart is good with wine. That's the, the Hebrew expression. Uh, and here's the thing. In the Old Testament, whenever you hear that phrase, whatever happens next is bad. Right? Anytime you hear it, they were good with wine, whatever decision they make, not a good decision. And the same thing happens here. So, so why does the king ask his wife to come in? Why would she say no? Why is this a poor judgment? Well, thing to notice, verse 9, the king and his wife hold separate banquets. That's not Persian custom. Normally, men and women would dine together. Why do they dine separately here? Something we know from history, that eventually in parties, the men would get really drunk. And when they did, the women didn't particularly want to be around anymore. So the woman would take all of the nobility. They'd have their own party. The noble women would leave. The concubines, the dancers would come in. The bachelor party would go on over here while the women had their own affair over there. That, that, that's the background of what's happening here. Now, the king, he summons his wife with an official delegation of his eunuchs. That's the first sign there's a problem. He doesn't just go talk to his wife. He sends this envoy. The eunuchs, they couldn't have kids. They couldn't perpetuate a line. They weren't a threat to the empire. So they were often the king's closest advisors. And to convince his own wife to come to the party, he summons an envoy of the government. And the queen says, no. Why would she refuse? The text doesn't say, but here's what we can piece together. What is the king during, doing during this party? He wants to display the grandeur of his kingdom. What else does he want to display? His wife. In fact, he views his wife as his best object to display before everyone and asks her to come and get ogled by this drunken crowd of men. Not only that, but he says, wear your crown when you do it. What is he saying in effect to her? He's saying that I view my own queen as a concubine, as an object of, of lust. Now, Vashti is probably from a royal line, and she goes, this is not standard operating procedure here. This is not the way kings treat queens in Persia. Uh-uh. I'm not coming. She says, this is beneath me, and the king is infuriated. Now, this is all tangential, two things here. This is all free, okay? I mean, church is free, but this is free too, okay? <laughs> not directly related to the point. Two things. In the Bible, people make bad decisions when they're drunk, okay? Um, you will too. Okay? Here's something I've noticed generationally. My parents' generation, very cautious about alcohol in general, believers. And I would say that sometimes the pendulum swung too far 
to making it this legalistic thing where if you really love Jesus, you'll never drink any alcohol ever, which goes beyond what the Bible says. That's bad. The pendulum swung in my generation. All the way to everything. Christian liberty, Christian liberty. We can drink, we can drink, we can drink. And the danger of that is you ignore everything the Bible says about how alcohol will absolutely ruin your life. So that's just a caution to you. The pendulum's over here right now, okay? Be aware of that. 25% of people 18 and over binge drink once a month, okay? That's a lot of people drinking a lot of alcohol making a lot of dumb decisions. So you've got to set your own North Star on this and not just go with the culture in terms of alcohol and what it means to be sober-minded, as the Bible says. Sober-minded. Doesn't mean nothing necessarily, but it definitely doesn't mean as much as our culture says. Okay? That's a wisdom issue. Now, let's talk about the lust issue here, and I want to talk to the brothers. I want to talk to the sisters. Really quick, okay? Brothers, here's a good personal rule for me. I cannot simultaneously ogle a woman and honor a woman. I can't. It's impossible to look at a woman with lustful intent. That's what Jesus calls it. That's not about appreciating her beauty. It's actually not about her at all. It's about me and what I want. And at that point, she's not a person. She's an object. Okay? That's, that's just a rule for me. I know it's not always easy, but just know, you're not honoring if you're ogling, okay? The woman becomes a means to an end. And, and sisters, um, let me say this. There's this meme in culture floating around right now that like, if men ogle you or notice you, uh, like there's something powerful about that. Like that's a lie, Okay. Like, just listen to it from a guy's perspective. When men ogle, they're not thinking, what a powerful, competent woman that is. Okay? They're actually not thinking about you at all in one sense. They're, they want to use you. And, and so, sisters, here's what I would say. Keep the standards high when it comes to a guy. Keep them high. Don't keep them ridiculously high. Okay? He needs to make me breakfast in bed every morning. Like that, that's, that's too high a standard, okay? Don't keep them high, just keep them biblical. Just keep them biblical, all right? Which means guys that want to rush towards the physical are not honoring you. It's not about you, it's about them. If they're rushing, that's a bad and as one pastor has said, if the bar gets below the Bible and down here, there are a herd of morons, a herd ready to jump over that bar, who will say or do anything, just about anything, to convince you to get with them in bed, okay? That was all free. Now, back to the point. The propaganda of empire is always that the best life is if you just submit to the values of the empire. What happens if you submit to the values of this empire? It's actually horrible for women in particular. What we find is it's a brutal and dehumanizing empire. And you know, in one sense, things don't change that much over time. Right? People still worship alcohol. They still worship sex. These are still the addictions. Here's how it's changed, I think, 
for, for us in our culture is that because we are radically individualistic, radically individualistic, we view sex and romantic relationships through the lens of me. And if it makes me happy, it's a good thing. If it stops making me happy, it's a bad thing. And so whatever gratifies, satisfies me is something to pursue at all costs, and the collateral damage to humanity is enormous when you view sex and relationships that way. I mean, the, the industry of pornography, the multi-billion dollar industry, you know how many lawsuits are against those companies right now? And lawsuits because they aid and abet human trafficking and exploitation and actual sexual crimes. Well, why? Because if sex is about me and gratifying my desires, then I will seek out any content, that's where the money is, and they'll even break the law to give you content that you want to see. And the collateral is, of course, the most innocent, vulnerable people in society often. So that's the narcissism there that leads to exploitation. There's a kind of emotional narcissism in relationships now where the purpose of marriage is my self-actualization and fulfillment, and if it stops being a place for me to be free and self-actualized, I'm out. I'm done. I mean, it's amazing to me. I've read three articles in the last few months from the most powerful, high-status women in our culture getting divorces, and in each case, the reason has nothing to do with the guy. They don't even give a clear reason why the guy did anything wrong. In fact, they say, no, the guy was great. It's just I realized this relationship was stifling to me and my goals, and I couldn't be free. And so I had to get a divorce to love myself. It was a radical act of self-love to be free from this. And, and the guy, it's not just that he didn't do anything worthy of divorce. He didn't do anything. Like, no, he's a great guy. We're still friends. I just, this was necessary for my own self-actualization. That's a crazy way to think about marriage. Oh, this is going to stifle me. You know why it's going to stifle you? Because it's marriage. No, I'm serious about that. Like, honestly, you don't lose your identity in marriage. You do lose your independence, though. That's part of the deal. Two, becoming one, which means you don't get everything you already wanted in life and get to take this person along and drag them for the ride. That's not marriage. It means you both have to die and that two selfish me's have to become one we to learn to sacrifice and love like Jesus. Now, the reason I harp on this is because you are being bombarded all the time with the message that the purpose of sex and romantic relationships is you and it's not. And if you treat them that way, you will have a wake of damage throughout your life. I love you. I don't want that. Okay? So, the goodness of the values of the empire, they're not that good. Here's the other thing we see when we pull back the curtain, that the, the greatness of the empire, it's not that great. In fact, it's, it's run by a bunch of idiots. That's what we see here. Then Mamukin, I love that name, we get mucus from that. Uh, no, I don't know. I, then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Oswaris. It's a global catastrophe. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Oswaris commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia 
And media who have heard of the queen's, queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. Um, this is a funny book. It's a really funny book. Now, these men are presented as the ones who know the times and the laws. These are the wisest men. And, and the king, he's so inept in his own marriage that he goes to his legal counsel. And it's like, okay, what does the law say I do now? And they don't talk about the law at all. They don't talk about precedent. They just make up this conspiracy theory. Like, you know what happens? If, if she treats you that way, every woman in the world is going to treat their husbands that way. We've got a revolt on our hands. Yeah. Now, the funny thing is, there is a plot brewing to overthrow the empire. In fact, we'll see that in chapter 2. They just have no idea where it's coming from. They, they think that every woman in the empire is the threat now. right? But Vashti treated her husband with contempt because he's contemptible, right? And they just draw this wild inference that they have a political crisis on their hands. And so these men have no idea what the real threat to their kingdom is. The reasoning here is stupid. The solution is stupider, okay? Stupider. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. The, this is an, a massive bureaucracy operating with extreme efficiency to just do stupid things. Right? There is so much irony here. Because on the one hand, think about this. Vashti said, I don't want to see you. I'm done. What does is, what is the king decree? Well, you will not see me. Right? It's like Vashti is like, I quit. And the king's like, no, you're not. You're fired. Right? That's, that's the first thing about the decree. She actually kind of <laughs> lets Vashti off the hook, probably a relief. Uh, the other thing that's irony is this, uh, ironic is this. The, the wise men's fear is that what? Word will get out. Word will get out about what Vashti has done. So what do they do? What do they do? They publish it. They send word out to everybody about what Vashti did. Everybody. They, they, it, it is the exact opposite of what you think they would do. And what we see here are wise men that aren't that wise, they're very impulsive, conspiratorial, and a king who can't do anything on his own initiative. Nothing. That's the irony of the king in this story. The only person who never really makes an independent decision, do you know who it is? The king. Every decision he goes to his counselors and says, what do I do? And then does it. He is utterly malleable paranoid, obsessed with the way the winds are blowing, unlike politicians today. <laughs> but, but here's the point. The, the curtain is being pulled back on this empire, and what you see 
are idiots who have no idea where the threat is, who have no idea what laws make sense, who are impulsive and erratic. And yet, this is a terrifying decree, isn't it? It's, it's, we're putting our thumb on you, don't mess with us. But these are not people to be feared in the long run. They are scared, incompetent fools. Here's the point for us. No matter how big and scary culture looks or cultural values look or the laws that people put into effect, these things are so often made by scared, impulsive people and they change on a dime. That's what you've got to remember when you're, you're afraid, when you feel opposition. You know, people believed things 10 years ago that were totally normal to believe. And today, in the popular vernacular, you're a wicked bigot for believing those things. And guess what's going to happen in 10 years? Things you believe today, you'll be canceled for in 10 years. And things people would cancel for you now, they won't care about it at all. They won't because culture is always changing, shifting on a dime to popular opinion. And, and people are impulsive. These things don't last. These things don't endure. These are not the people you should Here's what it means. Whatever the culture is messaging to us, we have to learn to deconstruct it and challenge it all the time because you're always being discipled by the culture. Always, always, always. And you have to ask, well, what do they say the good life is? Why do they claim to be great? Are those things true? You're getting messaged to you. So here is your assignment for today, okay? I'm about to ruin your Super Bowl parties. And I'm okay with that because the Niners aren't playing, all right? So, sorry to you Rams fans and you Bengals fans. There's no Bengals fans here. But uh, anyway, I, uh, <laughs> uh, there's, okay, there's a few. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. You, uh, no, I believe you. I believe you. All right. So, and I commend you too. That's, a, that's true fandom. So, here's, here's, here's my challenge for you. During the Super Bowl, this is the biggest propaganda party of the year. Right? You've got billions of people watching. Here's the chance to get your message out. And you're going to hear about the greatness of our country. You're going to hear about the greatness of the NFL. You're going to hear about the greatness of Allstate insurance. Um, you're going to hear about all these things. And so as you're watching, ask, okay, what is the value being communicated here? What priorities do they want me to adopt? Because if you don't ask that question all the time, you're going to get discipled by the culture rather than getting discipled by the word. And it's very subtle the way it happens. Let me give you an example. There's a really weird commercial right now. I just think it's weird, Okay. Um, I think it's AT&T or something, but this woman has her phone, and a young, attractive woman, and they just show her in different places alone with her phone. And that's the commercial. Like, she's running, stops at a stoplight, like, <laughs> yeah, smiles at her phone, and then she walks into a coffee shop, and she's like, I love my phone, this is great, and she's walking in, and then, and then she's at home alone, just smiling, Look at her phone. And no other human being appears in the entire commercial. Now, it's 2022. Smartphone was 20, 2007, right? Imagine a commercial in 2006 that was that, saying, here's what's coming, the smartphone. We'd be like, help me, Jesus, right? Like, seriously? That's the end game? Like, that's, we don't want that, right? That's what we would have thought. That's weird and creepy, and yet that's marketable now. Right? Culture shifts very suddenly until it doesn't, and it's changed. 
And so always, with everything, be deconstructing it. Be asking, what are the values? What am I, what's the good life? What am I being told to adopt, right? That's the, that's the question. The, the kingdoms of the world, we need to pull back the curtain and say, is this really good? Does this lead to flourishing? Is this great? Is this something I should feel? Now, if you do that, you might not assimilate, but you might still despair. You might say, great, I'm not going to be like the culture, but the culture is the culture, and it's going to culture, so whatever. That's why we need point two, which is that we see God's hidden hand at work even in the most improbable places. Two things here. What this passage teaches is that God works even through the most corrupt leaders. Xerxes is not a good dude. But do you know what Xerxes is? A malleable dude. (laughs) He can easily be manipulated in this direction or that direction. Proverbs 21 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. You know the benefit of a malleable ruler? They can, for bad reasons, decree a good thing. For selfish reasons, decree a good thing. And what happens in this book? If Xerxes wasn't malleable and the kind of guy who could be easily persuaded, he would not be the kind of guy who would be easily persuaded to what saved the Jewish people through an impulsive decree. So, so God uses even corrupt leaders with corrupt motives to accomplish miraculous good. I love Daniel 4 where it says that God sets over the kingdoms of the world whosoever he will, even the basest of men. Even the most wicked men, their heart is a stream in the hand of the Lord. He will turn it in the direction he wants. And even things that are manifestly wicked and stupid to us, he turns them to accomplish great good. That's the first thing you need to be encouraged by. This is how God's always worked. Second, God loves to work through the most marginal. The people we least expect. Think about this. This is the literary brilliance of Esther. Is that upon reading this chapter, our impression would be what? The, the one hero in this book, do you know what it's not going to be? It's not going to be a woman. Because this is the worst culture imaginable for women, the most oppressive, under your thumb. And how do we see that? Even the most powerful woman in the empire can get deposed just like that. Right? So, so, so it's not going to be a woman who saves Israel, right? And, and what is the king looking for What's the better woman? Do you know what it is? It's someone who just satisfies his own desires. I need to find a woman who does what I say all the time because that'll make my reign easier. And that's chapter two. Stay tuned. We'll be there next week. So we are led to believe as readers that the king is going to find the most submissive, most go with the flow, do whatever it takes to please the king kind of woman he can find to get what he wants. And so surely it's not going to be a woman. Surely it's not going to be a woman who is a religious minority, who's an orphan, who God uses, installs as queen to save his people, right? That's why this is such a good story. I love what the wise men say because here's a little hint from the author of what's really happening. It says, let the king give her royal position to another who is, quote, better than she. 
Now, in the eyes of the king, what does it mean that she's better, that she's hotter, that she's better in bed, that she's more compliant to him? But you know, that phrase is actually a quote from 1 Samuel 15, where God says he will remove Saul from kingship and put David, who was better than he. So, so in God's eyes, Esther is better, but better for different reasons. You know who she's better for? The Jewish people. She will be better for accomplishing God's purpose of delivering. So you see what's happening? Even the, the wicked decision of the king, God's going to use that for a better outcome for his people and get the person he wants in that position through an improbable set of circumstances. Here's why that should encourage you. Maybe it's at your work. Maybe it's at your school. Maybe you feel like, I am the last person who can affect change here. I am the least likely to make any pin pack for the kingdom. Guess what? That is the person God usually uses. Usually uses. That's his MO, is to use that person to shame the wise, to confound them, and to exalt the humble. So take courage. That should make you more courageous. Take more calculated risks for Jesus, because you think, if I am, in the, I am the least likely to do this, right? It's the Lego movie speech, right, with Emmett. Like, I know what you're thinking. This is the least qualified person to lead us in this situation. That's who God uses. That's the encouragement. And ultimately, all this brings us back to the gospel, where we see these two things writ large, because Pilate orders Jesus to be crucified. What is Pilate? He's the most powerful governing official in Israel. Is Pilate the most powerful person in the story? No. Man, you really don't have many chances to talk. Please just talk back. Okay, no, he's not. No, he is absolutely malleable, depending on popular opinion. And so he makes this wicked decision to crucify the Son of God. And there is no one weaker from a human perspective and more marginal in the story than who? Jesus. He appears absolutely powerless, and yet God uses the wicked decision of a malleable ruler and uses the most marginalized, the most outcast to accomplish the greatest good for us, and that's redemption. This is how God always works. Exodus, Esther, Jesus, on and on and on it goes, and it's how he'll work in our lives as well, and that should give you great Let's pray. So God, we thank you for this weird and funny story. Uh, Lord, and I pray that it would give us a sense of anticipation and wonder about how you can work even in very dark times. And Lord, a, a, a hopeful realism that, that while the world is big and scary, uh, God, we do not need to fear. Lord, your word says the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in you is safe. So God, when we see your greatness and goodness displayed supremely on the cross, would we trust in that, Lord, and walk with you confidently all of our days. We pray it in your name. Amen.